just a little bit of my own story and then I just want to unpack a little bit of what um, gets me up in the morning in terms of the kingdom of God, what inspires me and encourages me and why I'm so encouraged and inspired by what you're doing here. That will all come together as I just sort of unpack a little bit. I'm not uh, from a church family. My family are not a family of believers. and uh, But um, my parents used to send me to a, uh, a Sunday school at a local Baptist church. And it wasn't because they were concerned for my spiritual welfare. It was just to give them an hour of peace and quiet on a Sunday morning and get me out of the house. And then I had a stream of friends who would take me to uh, their church. Um, tended to be traditional churches, Sunday schools and youth works, but I was saved through an Anglican youth work. So that would be sort of the equivalent of a Lutheran youth group uh, here in Finland, very sort of the state church, very traditional, but through the, uh, the friendship and the love and care of uh, people in this youth group at the age of 17 that I was saved. Jesus sought me out. I was a pretty broken, dysfunctional teenager and uh, I, I wasn't really looking for God. He came looking for me and he rescued me from my sin. He rescued me from myself. And uh, so never, I mean, never underestimate uh, the power of ministry to children. You know, just the, the few minutes we've just had. You know, and the ministry to you, the value of children's and youth work. Never underestimate it. I am here because of people in a small Baptist church faithfully caring for me, even though, you know, I'd just sort of come in off the streets effectively, and uh, of people who would take me to uh, their youth group and they would accept me and receive me. I was not an easy teenager. I wasn't an easy, some people say I'm not very easy, but um, don't ask my wife, you know. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I wasn't easy. I was very, very withdrawn. I was, uh, I, I, I am an introvert. I was very painfully shy, emotionally bound up. And uh, I used to just sort of shuffle in and stand by the door. And these people would come and they'd embrace me and receive me and accept me. And it was the love of God to me through these people. And it was through that that I came to encounter Jesus for myself. So never underestimate the value of children's and youth work. Never overlook the one who doesn't look as though he's going to fit in. You know, you just don't know what God's got in mind for them. And uh, so it's just wonderful to pray for the kids in this way. I was uh, invited to be baptised as a believer in the Anglican Church when I was 19. And uh, as I was being baptised by the Bishop of Tunbridge Wells, I was overwhelmed by the power of God. I was drenched with holy love, liquid love through my whole body. I lost the strength to stand, and I fell into the arms of the Bishop of Tom <laughs> who had to carry me back to my seat. <laughs> you know? And uh, I said, what was that? I was in a church that didn't teach things of the Spirit. They thought the things of the Spirit were for another day, but not for today. And I said, what was that? And they said, oh, you probably got a little bit emotional. And I thought that was, not, that was more than a bit emotional. I know what it means. Yeah. That was not that. Yeah. And I was just I was unbound emotionally, having been bound up, constipated emotionally. I was suddenly, I had a sort of... A, no, I don't really <laughs> carry that. I don't really carry that analogy too far. I was unbound, shall we say? And um, you know, found myself weeping with relief. I think there's the overwhelming um, consequence of meeting God by His power 
It's just the relief of knowing he's real and that he's come back for me. It's just a relief. You think, God, this is what, you know. I love my life in this world, but I, I'm not too keen on what I see going on in this world. And to know that this is not the story. This is just, you know, we're not, in, we're not of this world. We're passing through. And there's some, this is the appetizer for real life, you know. Um, what can you say, you know? Just uh, sheer relief and joy. So what do you do? Well, I applied to become a priest. <laughs> I applied to become a vicar in the Anglican Church. I don't know why, I just thought it seemed the right thing to do, and they turned me down, which is probably a good thing. But there was a sense of uh, a call stirred in me at a very early age. <coughs> I just want to give my life to this, and that was the only way I knew how. In those days, I'd been saved in an Anglican Church, and if you want to give your life, that's what you do. You know? And, I, and um, I uh, was grateful they turned me down in the long run if I wanted to, but anyway. But I think what was the most influential experience for me in my early days was, uh, I'm so grateful to this, the guy who was my uh, youth leader at the time, he invited me in the first summer that I was saved, so I got saved in the Easter, um, just before my 18th birthday, and then in my first summer, he invited me to a, a Scripture Union Beach Mission. You may not know what that is, but it's a mission organisation that does... Uh, missions on the beaches of England when all the families are there on holiday and we go on the beach and we set up a sort of a, a pulpit on the beach and we, we preach the gospel and we gather the children and we do all sorts of activities and so for two weeks we'd be living residentially just like this imagine it you know two weeks like this with a whole bunch of families and friends and uh, worshipping together living a sort of a community life together but with the added uh, element that we were there on a mission. And so from here, we would have our time of worship like we have today, and a bit of teaching and inspiration from the Bible, and then we would all go out onto the beaches and would be uh, reaching out. I had my, my first and only experience of being stoned, and I'm not talking about drugs here, I'm talking about people throwing stones at me on the beach when I was trying to uh, uh, you know, reach out to people with the gospel. I'd like to say it's because... It was a bit of uh, persecution for the gospel. It wasn't. It was because I'd set my banner up and they couldn't see the sea. So they were chucking stones at me to get the moon. So I moved my banner over it, you know, <laughs> so they could see. Um, but for me, for me this, was, <laughs> this was a really rich experience in my formative years as a Christian of, um, of a type of church. Because it was church without the religion. It was, it was church without the religion. We were just we were the family of God on a mission, literally. And uh, we enjoyed the dynamics of just being, living together in a family just as we have done here this weekend. We enjoyed the, the intimacy and informality of simple worship in the presence of God just as we have done this weekend. But as I say, and then we would go out on the mission of God. And it, for me, it was like, well, is this not what church should be like? And, um, and what was striking to me was that we would see a number of people drawn to the gospel, getting saved, but after the mission, they would never go to church. Because the, the culture shock between what they experienced among us as a team on a mission, getting saved there, and then going to the local church, was so extreme. They're saying, this church is nothing like we experienced with you. You know, it's all tradition and reading from books and this, that and the other. And you think, well, yeah, what they're doing is valuable. And they say, yeah, but it's not what we experienced when we were, you know, with you. And we also found loads and loads of church families would bring their families just to be part of the mission as almost like 
uh, respite from 50 weeks of church, you know. Oh, we need a rest, you know, let's come here and be part of this, and then we've got to go back to church for 50 weeks, you know. I thought, what is going on here? Yeah. We had, I don't know if you have this in Finland, but in the UK we had a, a conference called uh, uh, Spring Harvest, and every year people would go to Spring Harvest, almost like to escape from church. Oh, we've got to get away from church, go to this conference where we can worship God and really, really enjoy ourselves. It's really great fun. And then we've got to go back to church again, you know. And I'm thinking, what is this attitude <laughs> that we go to church, but no one seems to be enjoying it? It's almost like they have to do something else as an antidote to their church experience. Now, I'm talking about church 30, 40 years ago in my <laughs> nation. <laughs> and I'm very grateful. I got saved in the Anglican church. I'm very grateful for these faithful men and women who discipled me. But their experience of church didn't inspire me. It was like, and and I remember sitting in a very boring, dull, uh, traditional church meeting. We were were members, we were leading youth work. I remember sitting in this meeting, and I'm sort of like, (laughs) and uh, Rachel used to, I don't know if you remember this, but Rachel used to have to grab my arm and uh, run her fingers on my wrist to keep me awake, you know. Because <laughs> I'll be always there. <laughs> and I just remember saying to myself, God, are you really enjoying this? God, are you enjoying this as an experience? You know, the people of God coming together. Is this really pleasing you? This church full of brilliant people who love God, but no one seems to be enjoying it. They're just putting themselves through this experience because they think this is how we're supposed to do church. And I'm. It just didn't sit right for me. Why were people so dissatisfied with the church? You know? And um, I remember about that time hearing a prophetic picture, and the picture was of a beautiful royal princess who'd fallen asleep under a curse, and which could only be broken by the kiss of a royal prince. And it was interpreted as a picture of the church, as a sleeping royal beauty who is awakened by the kiss of her lover, the King, Jesus himself. And this picture awoke something in me. I began to gather my thoughts together and see what the problem was. You know, the church was a sleeping beauty. So, so many churches at the time, as I say, I'm talking about my country 30 or 40 years ago. So many churches were under a sort of a, a, a heavy burden of traditionalism and legalism and uh, institutionalism, and instead of being the primary expression of the coming kingdom of God, it became an institution that we had to apologise for. And this was common for us. I mean, it might seem a bit alien to you from your church experience here, I'm just trying to give you the context. But it was common for us 30, 40 years ago to say to people, you know, know, don't look at the church, look at Jesus. You know, ignore the church, look at Jesus, yeah. Uh, the church is a bit embarrassing, actually, but Jesus is great, you know, but don't worry, too, you, know, ooh, you know, the church, well, we have faith for this, but um, uh, this was the way, the sort of attitude that we, was, <laughs> we were living with. But I became, I became convinced through all these experiences that the church, in God's perspective, rather than being a bit of an embarrassment and a strange pursuit of weird Christians, was actually at the very heart of the ambitions of God for his own glory. And this was the journey that God took me on. And uh, gathering to the community of the church should be the, the very highlight of our existence. You know? 
being together with God's people, exciting, bright, fun, safe, a cool refuge from the heat of the world, uh, somewhere to shelter from the storms of life and, and, and you know, bring uh, strength to one another to send us back out into the world. Not an experience to be endured uh, or, you know, judged or sort of, oh, do I have to go to church, you know. No, this is my people. This is my, my family. This is my tribe. I want to be with these people. And we're together. We're on a great, uh, we're about a great work. It's a beautiful place for everyone, a place where everyone can just be themselves. And um, these things may not seem particularly <coughs> radical to you, but at that time, this was uh, really quite paradigm shifting to consider that it's possible to have church in that way. The church restored in all her beauty, I am convinced, is the most powerful agent of mission and evangelism in the world today. Just by being who she is, just by having people among you, you're already on a mission. Even before you start doing your evangelism initiatives and mission programs, just be the people of God. It's incredibly attractive. You know, see how they love one another. People will know you're my disciples because of how you love one another, you know. And surely the unbeliever will be among you and say, surely your God is with you, you know, the power of God is here. Just be. Even before you have to do, before you plan a strategy or think, how are we going to do this and how are we going to do that? Just be the authentic church. It is the most powerful agent of mission. The beauty and the wonder of the church is in itself a powerful agent. Unless we hold the highest value and view of the church, what are we seeking to see people saved to? You know, we read in the narratives of the New Testament, people were saved and added. They never, it never, it's never conceived that people would be saved into glorious isolation. It was always conceived they'd be saved into a community. And so what are we saving them into? We're saving them into something beautiful, added to the church. The most, dare I say this, the most significant and important group of people on the face of the planet today. Dare I say that? You know, Jesus is the only one who has the words of life, the words of eternal life. You know, when he, he gave some really challenging teaching in John 6, and everybody deserted, and he turned to his disciples and said, are you going to go as well? And they said, where else can we go? You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. Yeah. Where else do you go? Where else can people find the words of eternal life apart from Jesus? And the church is the body of Jesus in the earth today empowered by the spirit of Jesus and so for the world today there is no one more important on the planet than the people of Jesus because we are bringing to them the words of eternal life we're not trying to recruit them to our philosophies and our ways we're trying to show them the path to freedom and life and uh, that makes you the church the most important people together with the others uh, gathering in the name of Jesus in Helsinki you are the most important people in Helsinki in 2019. Yeah, you don't look very convinced. Do you, is my logic secure? Yeah, it's secure logic, isn't it? Okay. You may not feel like that, but my logic is secure. You are the most significant thing happening in Helsinki, together with the others that gather in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.
the first and foremost strategy God has given us for reaching the lost world is the church itself. So I'm now, I am convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ, demonstrated and proclaimed through the church of Jesus Christ, is the ultimate purpose of God in the world in these end times. That is my conviction. So as I grew in my understanding of these things, any other possible motivation for living seemed to become somewhat insignificant by comparison. You know, I said, what else am I going to give my life to? What higher purpose is there to live for than to work with God in fulfilling his kingdom purposes in the world today? Now, that is a call for all of us, and it will express itself in many, many different ways. So, for me, it meant actually leaving my career in the military to go and give uh, as much of my time as I could to this. But that's not the only way it is. That doesn't mean that that's somehow more effective or more important. It has to be according to what you know God has called you to. If I was being more fruitful in my military career, I would have stayed there. But I wasn't being very fruitful. I was being more fruitful in two weeks on a mission with Chris Julian than I was for 50 weeks in the military. And so I thought, I'd better give my time to doing this. Because I wasn't bearing much fruit for the kingdom in these other ways. But for other people, it will be different. You'll be very fruitful in your workplace. And you wouldn't be very fruitful. We've just got to be obedient to what God has called us to. But every one of us is called to this. So for me personally, I feel God has not only buried a vision in my heart of how his church should be, but he's burned a purpose in my life that we would be instrumental in changing the expression of Christianity in the world today. You may have heard that expression. But through the church, wherever we may be, you know, for me, whether it be in my home city of London, whether it be in the, the rural towns and, and villages of uh, East England, where we've been for quite a number of years, whether it be in the nations of Europe, where now we're, we're spending more of our time, and beyond, I am devoted to seeing authentic uh, blueprints of Christianity worked out in nation after nation. That is my absolute conviction. We are here to change the expression of Christianity. In the, in the nations of the world and restore it to authentic New Testament blueprints. Amen? Amen. This is, I'm ruined for anything else, to be honest. That's what I'm giving my life to. The guiding factor for all my significant life decisions is will I be able to play my part in, in building an expression of church that will change the expression of Christianity wherever I am? I want to build with silver and gold. I honour and respect all expressions of God's church. I don't criticise any of them. But I believe there is a simple revelation about the blueprint of God's church that if we're faithful to it, it's, uh, it gladdens the heart of God. It's the bride that he wants to come back for. And that's what we're trying to outwork together. This is what God is doing in the world today. So I've spent many years planting churches like that, and now my emphasis has shifted to raising up disciples who have planted those churches. Yeah, and I've got much more reach. If I can disciple 20 men and women to go and plant 10 churches, um, that's more effective than me trying to go around and plant one after the other, after the other, after the other. You know? um, and so I'm looking to raise up disciples who feel the same way. That is, for every one of us in the room here, this is our most potent legacy, is said disciples. Okay? That's, uh, if you think, what's my legacy? What am I going to leave behind when I've gone? Uh, well, consider Jesus. You know, he left behind disciples sent on a mission. And uh, so, who are you discipling? Who are, you, who are your uh, disciples that you're raising up that are going to go on and run faster and jump higher than you can 
and will go on to do the will of God in their own life. So one of the passages of scripture that I've often meditated on that speaks directly into this is Isaiah 62. So this is just my introduction, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> We're now going to have the, uh, the message, uh, I'm going to turn to Isaiah 62. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this together. And um, it's important just to put Isaiah 62 in its context. There's a bunch of scriptures in the Old Testament that speak of the restoration of God's people. Many of the uh, Old Testament prophets speak of a future for God's people that would have seemed breathtaking and almost impossible to imagine for the people of God in the day that they first would have heard this. But these scriptures have several applications. They have an application for the people of the day, so it can be read in terms of how it would have applied to the people of that day. Uh, but there's a second application in terms of what it means in the longer term for ethnic Israel. That's the second way you can apply these scriptures. And you can read it for what it means for spiritual Israel. And that's us. You can read these scriptures in terms of what God's intent is for his people. We are the children of Abraham by faith, it tells us in Galatians 3, verse 7. We are the inheritors of the promises of Israel, it says in Galatians 3, 29. So we can read these scriptures and say, you know, there is an application for us as we read these scriptures. Um, when we speak of Zion and Jerusalem, it's an application to Zion as the universal redeemed people of God. And uh, that includes us. And when we speak of Jerusalem, the city of God, we can be speaking of the universal church of God. We're the living stones of the dwelling place of God. So let's read this through. This has been probably, for me, and it'll be different for each of us, but this has been the most influential shaping passage of scripture for my sense of life and destiny than any other that I can think of. So, when you read Zion, think of God's people. When you think of Jerusalem, think of his holy city. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness all the kings, your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. We're, we're given permission by God to nag him. He's saying, you know, he's saying, come on, bring it on. Don't give me any rest until we've done this, until we've seen it happen. So I'm thinking, right, that is my job description now. I'm not going to rest, and I'm, not, I'm giving God no rest. Say, so come on, God, you said it. If you didn't mean it, as Mike Betts would say, you shouldn't have said it. <laughs> but you said it, so you better, come on, come and do it. You said you're going to do this. You're going to do this, and so I'm going to give you no rest. Until it happens. Let's jump down to verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. 
prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. And this has lived with me from the first day I read it. This is what God thinks when he's thinking of his church. Now we're living in a world where the church has been considered obsolete and redundant. I live in a culture which has rejected the ways of God. I live in a culture that sees the church as irrelevance. You know, if ever the church speaks up, they're shouted down. What have you got to say about this? And so the church, in order to fit in with our culture, we're having to change the way we do things. Yeah, we're quite happy with this now. Oh yeah, we used to be against that, but we're all right with it now. The tail is wagging the dog. stop there. <laughs> There's every now and then when I'm preaching, I have to think more of it. Behave. Okay. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be conditioned by what the world thinks of the church. And I don't want to be conditioned by a lot of what the church thinks of the church. I went to a Bible college and um, I was there, I was doing some postgrad studies. I was there on my first day. There's about 300 students and they said, could you come and speak to the students? I think I'm the newbie here. Why, what on earth have I got to say? So I will tell you why. He said, because in this Bible college, the majority of the students here have given up on the church as a vehicle for mission. But we know that you're from New Frontiers, this family of churches, and you still have a high value on the church. And we'd like you to teach uh, the people why that is the case. So I had to stand in front of uh, these people at you know, a few minutes' notice and explain why I was so uh, excited about the church as the vehicle for God's mission. And I talked exactly about, I talked about the fact that Jesus could choose any bride and he chose the church. You know, if Jesus loves the church that much, shouldn't we? You know, and I talked about the people, the blokes who so wanted their friend to get saved that they smashed a hole through the ceiling yeah. to get their friend lowered down in front of Jesus. And we're the body of Jesus. You know, we want people to be smashing a hole through the ceiling to bring their friends to church. Because that's where they're going to meet Jesus. And, uh, you know, the church has given up on the church. But God has never given up on the church, and his vision for his church is huge. We've just read it. Okay, I'm just going to look at three things. Number one, the visibility of the church. This is God's vision for the visibility of the church. The righteousness of the church will shine out like the dawn. The fact that we are right with God will be obvious to everyone. It's a bit ironic being somewhere where we actually haven't had a dawn. I mean, it's sort of a, uh, we, didn't, we didn't have a sunset or a sunrise, you know. But uh, imagine the sun has risen, you know. No one misses it. Everybody knows the sun has risen. And everybody will know that the church is right with God. You know, they'll all look at it and think, well, God's with them. And they're with God. That's God's expectation countercultural individuals and community. The salvation of the church will shine out like a blazing torch. I remember when I was first sort of preaching on this message, it was about the time of that time of, um, of the Olympics, you know, and that they set this torch alight and it burns and never goes out all the way through the tournament. Day and night, the torch is there, you know. 
the sense of a blazing torch. This is the what God has done in saving the people of God will be seen again, day and night, by everybody. It's like a blazing torch, lives transformed. There's nothing more powerful evidence of the gospel than transformed lives. And we used to know you. Why? You know, you're like this now. Well, I met Jesus. My life is transformed. And it's like a blazing torch. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to see. Nations will see the righteousness of the church. It's a, kings will see the glory of the church. This is God's expectation. The church isn't going to be hidden away, buried. I was, uh, some friends of mine, they used to be part of a church in London called the Invisible Church. <laughs> and they went, you know, I said, well, what's that about? He said, well, it's just like we're the Invisible Church. No, I'm not sure that's what God had in mind. You know, about, you know, God says in Isaiah 60 that you'll be the light of the world. I think you can't be invisible and be the light of the world, you know. The, the, the praise of the earth. In Matthew 5, a city on a hill which cannot be hid. That's not an invisible church. Jesus so loved the church that he gave his life up for her, says in Ephesians 5. You know, it's the very dwelling place of God, says Zechariah and uh, Paul in Ephesians and John in Revelation again and again. The church, you know, this is what God has, God has to think about his church. The church will no longer be called deserted or desolate. The church will now be called sought after. The city no longer deserted. The church will be the praise of the whole earth. This is God's vision. And the challenge for us is, is this our vision? Do we see the church in the same way? Do we put such a high value on the church? And I meet, I meet many people who love to come to church and they love to be part of it. But I'm not sure they're seeing church in this way. I'm not sure they're seeing church the way God sees it. Because I think if they did, I would expect some of their responses to be different in different situations. But you can tell that you know, it's not so important. You know, I don't really invest much in it in terms of my time or my money or my energy. I like to turn up. I like to take the benefit of being part of the church. But I'm not seeing it in this way. And so... There's a challenge for us to line ourselves up with how God sees his church. He's absolutely thrilled with his church. He loves it. He loves what's happening here. He's absolutely stirred by this. It's the best thing that's happened in your town or city. You know, we have to take God's word for this, not man's word. If you listen too much to what man has to say about the church, you will have a very low view of the church. And you'll be back to where we started, apologising, saying, well, I'm really sorry, you know. Yeah, it's, it's full of abusers and blah, 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 you know. And, yeah, they're all hypocrites and, yeah, they're just only after your money and blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to allow myself to be conditioned by what the world says about the church. I want to be conditioned by what God says about the church. And what God says is that it's so beautiful, everybody's going to see how beautiful it is. Yeah, it, in his mind, it is significant hugely significant. Satan would deceive us and say the church is not significant. God would say the church is hugely, ultimately significant. And I want to stay in that place. I don't want to get in that place of thinking, wow, give up. No. It's hugely, in God's view, centrally significant for him. So that's the first thing we can get from Isaiah, the visibility of the church. Secondly, the global mission of the church. Nations will see the righteousness of the church, we read there. Kings will see the glory of the church. The church will be the praise of the whole earth. This is going to happen one day. It's going to happen one day. There is like this, uh, we read about in Daniel, don't we, about this stone 
that breaks the uh, the idol, smashes it, but then this dome grows to become a mountain, and then becomes a mountain greater than all the other mountains in all the earth. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is going to become greater than all the mountains, all the kingdoms, and all the kings will come, and all the kings will sing, and the church will be the praise of the whole earth. And that is our destiny. This is our, our destiny. This is where we're going. You know, um, Abraham was a blessing to all the peoples on the earth, it says in Genesis 12. It says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then Paul restates that in Galatians 3, verse 7. And says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, he's referring to this promise in Genesis 12. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel to Abraham saying, in, all, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This is such a powerful scripture. It's so powerful. When God was speaking to Abraham and saying all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you, he was announcing the gospel in advance to the Gentiles. Is Paul's interpretation of that verse. That's a stunner. All right? So in our slightly early afternoon soporific Midsummer Sunday, make note, that's a stunner. Okay? <laughs> it's a stunner that the promise made to Abraham is now inherited by us. And in fact, it's not that we sort of slightly twisted and contorted the Bible to make it look like that. That's exactly what Paul says it means. Paul exactly says, we are the blessing to the nations because we are the sons of Abraham by faith. That's his interpretation of that. So we are inheritors of the promise. Again, we have to challenge ourselves. Is that our vision? Is that how we see this? Are we... Are we living in that? Recognising that you are God's blessing to this nation. You're the best thing that's happened to this nation. Yeah? It's not an ambition thing, it's a destiny thing. It's a core thing that God has done. Uh, as local churches, we will have global consequences. What you're doing here is going to have consequences for the nation. Blessing of this nation. The overs for the blessing to nations beyond and thirdly, we can read from these verses the royal destiny of the local church. So we've looked at the visibility of the local church. We've looked at uh, the, um, the um, global mission of the church. And then we can finally, we can see the royal destiny of the church. The church is a focus of intense royal activity. It's a crown, a diadem, a bride fit for the king. You, know, you can see how this resonates with my... Uh, this picture about a sleeping beauty you know we're here we see this beautiful royal bride fit for the king a royal household you know once we were aliens and outcasts now we're fellow citizens with the royal household of God you know in Ephesians 2 it says consequently you're no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people members of his household I really love this uh, a friend of mine Tom was preaching from uh, Revelation, where it says that uh, there was this enormous throng, you know, before the throne from every tongue, tribe, and nation, you know. So I, I will be English in heaven, and you will be Finnish in heaven, and uh, so, you know, we don't we don't leave our ethnicity behind. But uh, also, he said, uh, remember the Bible's a bestseller, and you're in it. <laughs> he said, he said, you can tell your mates at work that I'm in a bestseller. 
Because <laughs> I'm in that, I'm in that crowd, I'm in that throng. I'll be there, and uh, and I am being, uh, uh, in a sense, sort of uh, noted <coughs> in a book that's the bestseller in all of the world. That I'm going to be there before the throne, worshiping God, and uh, we've been adopted in. We're now fellow citizens. We were no people. Now we're a royal people. We're a bride made ready for the King of Kings. We're clothed with dignity and purpose. We're God's chosen instrument for the blessing and salvation of the whole world. Jesus gave his life for the church. Now we are a little flock. Then we will join with a throng from all nations. This is our destiny. God has prepared a place for us. There will be a marriage. There will be a feast. You will see these things. And the church will arise in all her splendor and take her place with her bridegroom. Amen? Okay, I know we're feeling a little bit dozy, but is this connecting with you? I hope it will, because this, in a sense, gives us our mandate for what we're doing here. And it, it, it shows us what we're doing here is so important, that we love the church, that we have a high view of the church, that what we're building here is an important demonstration of authenticity in the church. As I say, we, we love and honour God's church wherever it gathers, but it's important that we restore the church to the blueprint God intended. You know, you can read that in Acts 2, if you've got a moment where it says, you know, that, that, that they were all together in one place, devoted to the apostles' teaching, sharing everything they had with one another, uh, praying, breaking bread, oars, or in the signs and wonders that were happening. You see the simple blueprint of New Testament church. There's something so important about what you're doing that I want to try and get across to you today. There's something so vital about what you are doing here. For the sake of the gospel in Finland and for the sake of the gospel in Europe, we need mature, healthy models of simple, authentic New Testament church life because there are not many to be found. In my nation, there are not many to be found in this nation. So what would be a simple blueprint? Well, a church that loves the Word of God, that is faithful to the Word of God, even when it's unpopular, even when culture kicks against us and tells us we can't say these things. This is a church devoted to the Apostles' teaching, a church that loves the presence and power of God, that is enlivened by the Spirit of God, yeah, I was at a conference recently, I mentioned it to a few people, with 800 senior leaders from 40 nations of Europe, all saying, we don't want the power of God, because it's, you know, we're, we're afraid of it. And then like Nicodemus, they'd all come to us quietly, uh, after dark, and say, do you know what, we really need the power of God, but we just don't have anybody to show us a mature model. He said, the charismatics have scared us, because they're just irresponsible, and they're abusing the power of God. And we need someone to show us how to do this in a mature way. I'm thinking, well, have a look at this church. Here's a model. Well, read your Bible for a start. (laughs) That tells you how to be a mature model. You know, most of the abuses come from the fact people are not respecting what the scriptures say about how we handle the power of God. But also, to to build a model that you can say, well, have a look at this. Here's a model. See it in action, in your culture. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the grace of God, a community of grace, not a community of judgment. Yeah, a community that knows, you know, we love because we first be loved. You know, we forgive because we're forgiven. Those who've been forgiven much, forgive much. You know, we're not here to judge one another and measure one another. We're here to 
embrace one another, encourage one another, build one another up. And uh, the grace of God flavors everything we do. You know, if you just take those three, devotion to the Word of God, fearless preaching, courageous preaching of the Word of God, devotion to the power of God, let's let the Spirit have His way among us, and devotion to the grace of God. In my experience, your experience may be different, in my experience, when I look around the nations of Europe, and I travel quite widely, the number of churches that could honestly say that they've understood those three and are shaping their church life around them is not many. It's not many. There's not many that love the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the grace of God. Team leadership, Ephesians 4 ministries, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. You don't have to go very far before you suddenly realise authentic New Testament blueprint is absent in many, many churches. They're doing a great job. I honour them. They do a great job. They love God. They're, they're looking to pursue Him. And they love Jesus. And, I, and, I, and I, I bless it. I don't condemn it. But I'm looking to restore the church to an authentic blueprint. And so when I come across a church like this, and it's a small thing, and you think, we're so small, and what significance does this have? I say, no, it has huge significance. Please, friends, it has huge significance to build an authentic, simple, blueprint, New Testament blueprint church here. That will be an inspiration. Not that we're criticising and competing and saying, hey, you're doing it wrong, look at us, we're doing it right. But just say, look, hey, if we do it the way God showed us to do it in the first place, it will go well with us. It will go well with us. And by this way, we change the expression of Christianity in Finland and in the world today. I want to urge you, brothers and sisters, you're about a great work. You might think it's just like, no, you're about a very significant work. You're about a great work. Let's align ourselves with God's vision for his church. You know, let's give ourselves no rest. Give him no rest until we see this accomplished. Let's have our own vision, like God, for the visibility of the local church, for the global mission, for the royal destiny of the local church. Let's be this watchtower people. I love this. I love this. Keep the vision before the people. Pray. Exhort them. Encourage them. Keep watch. Say, look, it's coming. It's coming. You know, there are deep worlds. It's coming. <coughs> God's going to do something in Finland that's going to make people's ears tingle. They're going to hear about it around the world. It's coming. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Don't think, oh, you know, it's not worth it. It's just a small thing we're doing here. No, it's a very important thing you're doing here. It's really important because there's not many examples in the nation of Finland of a church trying to build to a simple blueprint. So I, I met a friend at this conference who's uh, a youth minister in the Lutheran church and he'd been accidentally baptised in the spirit. Okay. And he said, I, I keep having prophetic visions and speaking in tongues. I said, oh, okay. He said, I don't know what you mean by baptism in the spirit. I said, don't worry, I think you're already there. You know? But he said, I don't know how much longer I can stay in the Lutheran church because the structures are limiting what I can do. And I'm thinking, well, you need to meet these guys in Helsinki because... They can show you how to live to a simple New Testament blueprint. Because maybe one day that will be what he will have to do. And who knows how many more there are out like that, like that out there. You know? So we may, you know, we were praying rightly so yesterday that God would give us language so we can plant more churches. Maybe God's going to bring in many others who will say, can you just show us what you're doing? Not that we're recruiting them, not that they may ever join relational mission. Who cares? But that they are inspired to build to an authentic New Testament pattern and say, no. Well, we see how you can do it. We can do that where we are. We can restore this where we are. We can restore the church. We can do that. And you're inspiring them. 
And so you're changing the expression of Christianity. So I'm praying that for this relationship with this guy, we're going to do a road trip at some point soon and go meet him. And we're praying we can inspire him, not correct him, inspire him. And that then we can meet others that we can inspire and say, look, let's do it God's way. We're watchtower people. Let's build the church. Pass through the gates. Prepare the way. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. Let's build this church. Healthy churches will grow. Get the church right. It will grow. Build according to the wisdom of God. It will grow. It can confound our logic. It crosses foolishness. But it will grow. Give yourselves to this. You're about a great work. You are about a great work here. Okay? Turn to your neighbour. Let's be American for 30 seconds. And say, we're about a great work. We're about a great work. <laughs> All right? in there folks you know get stuck in love the church with the love of the Lord give, give your energies to it you know, you know like we were saying yesterday it's not about just sort of exhausting ourselves but be obedient to what you know you have to contribute it will energise you you know I've got some different ways that, but I think you know you know all this I don't know I just want to pray for us there's a prophetic word over us as a family of churches from a guy called Julian Adams he said I want you to God says, I want you to expect that he can do among us in 20 years what most people have expected to see God in doing 50 years. And that's nothing to do with us. That's nothing to do with what we're able to do. That is to do with what God is able to do. So through one faithful generation, it took 50 years to do, for God to do so much. And he's saying, you know what? In this generation, I'm going to do what I did in 50 years. I'm going to do it in 20 years. And we and we say, well, you know, that's quite, and we say, okay, well, how's that? What's that going to look like for us here? What could that look like for us here? What could God do in Finland in 20 years that other generations may have taken them 50 years to see it come to pass? So most of you are uh, good, fit young men and women. Some of us are a bit older, might be here in 20 years' time, but most of you should be here in 20 years' time, God willing. What could God do in 20 years? If this were to take root and grow, flourish and multiply, and uh, many other men and women would be inspired by simple New Testament patterns, what could be possible? Yeah, let's give ourselves to this. We're about we're about a great work.